You guys can keep your Bibles right where uh, Dan just read, and he read that very well. That was John 6, 1 through 15. That's going to be our text for this morning. Last Sunday, we wrapped up. We finished Jesus' discourse in chapter 5, where he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders who accused him of breaking their traditions after he healed a lame man at, at the poolside at Bethesda on the Sabbath. That's what we finished up with, his correction to them, and and, uh, just great. Go back and read chapter 5 if you have time. It's just such a phenomenal chapter. If you weren't here with us for several weeks, go back online to our website and uh, listen to the sermons, but just uh, chapter 5 was just amazing. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, basically the fourth sign that, that John, the author of this gospel, that he employed to demonstrate that Jesus is Messiah and God, the feeding of the 5,000. That's what this text has to do with. And just a little bit of context for you. Uh, Many, many months have passed since Jesus' showdown with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and we now find Him on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee uh, near a village called Bethsaida Julius. Uh, Bethsaida Julius was, as is described in Scripture, a desolate place. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, It was located about two miles inland near uh, what is called the fjords of the Jordan River. And uh, just a very remote place, a pretty place because there was was some water in the area, but it's a remote place. And, And so now we find Jesus headed in that direction or at that particular place. And Mark 631 tells us that Jesus actually brought his disciples to this place so they could take a respite, so they could take a break from ministry. And uh, that's interesting to me that Jesus had about three years of, of real active ministry, but he, he certainly, in the midst of all of that, even though we know he came to make the atonement and preach the gospel and all that stuff, he still broke away from the throes of ministry to take a break once in a while and to refresh. He spent a lot of time in prayer, and that is precisely what Mark 6 tells us that he's doing with the disciples. It's it's break time, guys, so come away with me to this desolate place, and we'll take a break. Uh, Mark 6.31 tells us that ministry was so busy prior to this moment that Jesus and the disciples didn't even have leisure to eat. The idea there is that they, they were so busy they couldn't even stop to have a meal together. They, they, you know, if they, they had to grab a falafel from Falafel Hut or something, I don't know. They didn't get to really stop and eat, so whatever they did, they did on the fly in the midst of all the ministry. And sometimes ministry can be busy like that. Life can certainly be busy like that, can't it? Where you, you realize after just going and going and going how depleted and exhausted you are. And, and you say to yourself, I'm taking a Sabbath. It reminds me of Psalm 23 where it says, God makes us lie down in green pastures. It doesn't say he invites us. He says it, it says he makes us lie down. You know, once in a while we have to be made to take a break. And that's kind of what's playing out here. They couldn't even eat. They were so busy. And so Jesus takes them across the lake to this place to, to take a break. But that's not at all how it played out. We just heard the text read and, and there was a lot of stuff going on. This morning, I've got four M's for you, M's. We're going to look at the masses in verses 1 through 4, the mercy, 5 through 9, the miracle, 10 through 13, and the misunderstanding in 14 and 15, our last two verses. I think I'll just pray before we get into it. Lord, we just humble ourselves. Each week we do this and we ask kind of the same thing. We just humble ourselves and ask for your leadership, your instruction, your sermon, your word, and not just that, but that, uh, that the Holy Spirit would attend your word and move in power and, and take us from point A to point B, make us a little bit more like Jesus, teach us something new today from the scripture, but not just to be taught so we have information and knowledge, but that we could attain wisdom as well, and wisdom is the right application of knowledge, so that we could actually just be doers of the word. Really, that's what we're after here. We want to hear it and know it and understand it and comprehend it, but we also want to do it. And so, 
uh, it's just an amazing thing that you work out in us and through us, Lord. And so we invite you today to do that, to teach us, train us, transform us, and use us for your glory. Lord, help us to, to see the text, maybe for some of us in a new, fresh way. I know that I learned some new things that were really, really exciting. And uh, I don't know, maybe there's people in this room that have studied this text or read it over and over and over. And I just pray that you would show us, show us Christ as we just sang about. We want to see Jesus here, and He's all over this text, but we want to see Him more than anything. He is our Lord and Savior. So be glorified during this time, Lord. Instruct us, teach us, and be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you ready? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, sounds like you're ready. Let's begin with the masses, verses 1 through 4. I'll just read the text again. You know how we do it here. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's, the lake is it's the same big lake. It's got two names. Actually, it had three names. I think it was the Lake Genesaret as well. So it had multiple names, but it's the same body of water. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him. Wait a minute. I thought he left them behind. He did. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And then verse 4, very important little verse, gives us a little more context. Uh, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So there's our first section. We're going to be focusing on the masses. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit more about context. The feeding of the 5,000, this fourth big miracle that John records did not occur, it did not happen right after the healing and confrontation at Bethesda. Okay, so if you read the Gospel of John only, you're going to get the idea that Jesus was in Jerusalem and he healed that guy and he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders and then he immediately left and went and did this. That's what you'll think if you read John. You have to turn to the synoptic Gospels to actually find out what happened. There's actually a gap of time here. There is a There is a gap here. John basically has this event, and then he fast-forwards about a year to this other event. So you've got a gap about six months to one year. The events of chapter 5. So what we were looking at chapter 5 with the discourse and the confrontation with the religious leaders, that particular uh, set of events occurred during one of the less notable feasts of the Jews. They had a bunch of them maybe the Feast of Tabernacles or maybe the Feast of Pentecost. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, you see there's the context. So what's playing out here took place during one of those feasts, and that's probably the reason why Jesus was in Jerusalem. So that was one of the less notable feasts, one of the smaller feasts. The events of chapter 6, however, took place during Passover. You see, if chapter 5 had taken place during Passover, John's pattern was to name the feasts And he would certainly name the primary feast of of Passover. He would have told us in chapter 5, verse 1, this is Passover. But he doesn't say that. He just says it's one of the feasts. In 6, we've got the Passover. This is the primary feast of the Jews in verse 4. So you've got time between that smaller feast and this biggest feast, this largest feast of the Jews. Six months to one year. We don't know exactly how much time, but it could have been six months to one year. Now, John doesn't tell us what Jesus was doing during this period of time. He just skips from the confrontation with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to this break time. He just skips like a whole year. He doesn't tell us, but the synoptic gospels, that's the other three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they do tell us what Jesus was doing. And I think it's important that if, you know, John skips around and he's got a reason for doing that, but I think it's okay to go back and examine some of the other things that were happening during that time. I want to remind you that John's goal, John's mission, the guy who wrote this gospel, it was not to produce another blow-by-blow chronological account of Jesus' life and ministry, but to highlight certain miracles and certain teachings that support Jesus' messiahship and uh, divinity or deity. So the other gospel writers come out there writing a little differently. They want to record as much as they can and and present the life and ministry of Jesus. John does that in a sense, but 
His goal really is to show us that Jesus is Messiah and He is God. Not to say that the other gospel writers didn't intend that, but their focus is differently. They're giving you like blow by blow. He did this, then he did this, then he did this. John doesn't do that. He skips around. He's got a different goal in mind here with his gospel. He wants us to walk away after reading the 21 chapters of John saying, I have no doubt that Jesus is our Messiah and He is divine. He is the Son of God and He is the Son of Man. That's John's goal. And isn't that what John has been arguing since the first chapter? Easily. Every week I talk to you about the divinity of Christ. Why? Because John's gospel talks about it. So John has a different approach than the other gospel writers. So he skips around a little bit. But when we look to the synoptic gospels, the other three, we see that Jesus was doing quite a bit of stuff. In fact, I'd say he did some of the biggest stuff during that one-year gap. He did some huge things during that time. I've got a few of them here for you. I had to do a little research, right? Now you find yourself in a chronological Bible where it's got all the events structured and you've got to read over here and over here. And when you're in a chronologically structured Bible, you see a huge gap in John. It just shows you. But here's some of the things Jesus did during that period that John did not record. He healed two blind men. Matthew 9, 27, 31, that's a pretty significant miracle to heal a couple of guys that can't see and then cause them to see again. Jesus entered a synagogue and healed a man with a shriveled hand. You've probably heard of that story. He did that in a Jewish synagogue. Matthew 12, 9 through 14, Mark 3, 1 through 6, Luke 6, 6 through 11. Those are the synoptic gospels. And, he, and here's one that's massive. I was so surprised when I, when I found this one, I was like, what? Are you kidding me? This happened during that time? John, what are you thinking? How do you not record? Again, different motive, different goal. Jesus preached his most famous sermon during that time. The sermon on the... That's, that's pretty big. You ever read it in Matthew 5? That's, a, that's incredible. Matthew 5, listen to how big that sermon is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 29. That's a big sermon. You thought I preached long? Jesus got me. Sermon on the Mount happened during this time. Another thing Jesus preached was his farming parables, right? The sower and the seed. Remember that stuff? You've heard that stuff before. That's uh, Matthew 13, 1 through 52, Mark 4, 1 through 34, Luke 8, 4 through 18. Pretty, pretty big stuff there. Two big, 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 very important sermons. Jesus calmed a massive storm that was threatening to sink the boat he and his disciples were sailing on. You remember that one? That happened during this time. Uh, Matthew 8, 23 through 27, Mark 4, 35 through 51, Luke 8, 22 through 25. Uh, another one here, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus kind of regularly went across the sea. We're seeing him do that in our text here, but he did it before and he he did it after even. He crossed the Sea of Galilee at this particular instance here, and he entered the country of the Gadarenes, uh, particular people on the other side of the lake, and he cast a legion of demons out of two men. And he cast those demons out of those two men. And we typically think of one man, but I think when you look in Mark, it says two clearly. He cast those, a legion of demons, that's a lot of demons. It wasn't just one demon in these guys. There was a lot of demons in these guys. These guys were possessed at the highest level. And he cast the demons out of them into a herd of pigs. And then what did the pigs do? Ran off a cliff. That's a lot of bacon going down. That happened during this gap. That's Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Mark 5, 1 through 20. Luke 8, 26 through 39. And then another thing that Jesus did, and this, this happened right at the end of that period where John now picks up, Jesus sent his disciples two by two to go and preach the gospel and perform miracles in the surrounding community of Capernaum. Matthew 10, 5 through 42, Mark 6, 7 through 13, Luke 9, 1 through 6. So that's just, I just kind of cherry-picked some of the more notable things that Jesus did in the Gospels, and those are things that He did in that six-month to one-year period. So you don't want to get the idea from John that He was just chilling for six months to a year. He was so active and so busy during that period of time. While the disciples were away, uh, when He sent them out two by two to go out and do the ministry and, and preach the Gospel, Jesus left Capernaum. That's where His home base was, and He went and taught and, and preached in various cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida, not Julius. There were two Bethsaidas, one on each side of the lake. 
So he's, he went to Bethsaida on the western side of the lake, uh, Matthew 11, 1, and then verse 21. So while the disciples are away preaching and teaching the gospel and all that and doing miracles, Jesus is doing the same thing in and around Capernaum, and they're out a little bit further doing it. And then Jesus returns to Capernaum, as I said, where his home base is located, and he continues to preach and warn the people to repent Matthew eleven twenty three through 24. And then the disciples return to Capernaum. You know, remember, they'd been sent away f- for a while. And guess how long they were gone? They speculate they were gone for two to three months. It's a long period of time here. This is a big gap. After two to three months of being away preaching and, and teaching and healing and doing all that stuff, they came back to Capernaum where Jesus was located, where Jesus had come back to, to give a report of all that they had done and taught. Mark 6.30. See, that's one of the big challenges when you preach through a gospel. You have to have the other gospels in mind. You know, you kind of you have to have a sense of what's going on everywhere. And needing a break. So we're led up to that moment. The disciples have just come back to Jesus after being out. And there's crowds there, and Jesus is dealing with crowds, and the disciples are back, and they're exhausted. And needing a break, Jesus takes the disciples, gets on a boat, and travels across the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, to a remote place called Bethsaida, Julius, the different Bethsaida. And it was only about a four-mile trip from one beach to the other, so this wasn't a long journey. This lake isn't a very big lake. How many of you have ever been to Jerusalem or to Israel? It's not, it's not a very large lake. It's not, it's, it's, I heard it's like a tenth the size of Tahoe. So it's not, a, it's not a really, really big lake. So this is like a four-mile trip via sea. And, and whenever someone took one of these smaller trips on the Sea of Galilee, they wouldn't head out to the open waters, which tend to be more choppy. There's winds out there and stuff like that. What they would do for the shorter trips is they would sort of hug the coastline. They would get out and set sail, and you know, maybe a few hundred yards or a quarter mile off, maybe not even that far, they would just kind of hug the rim of the coastline to their destination. And that's precisely what Jesus did here. When Jesus and the disciples boarded the boat at Capernaum, they left behind a large crowd, a pretty good-sized crowd. And these folks, John tells us, had witnessed the signs and healings Jesus, uh, Jesus was, had previously performed. He'd been doing all this stuff. The disciples come back to him. So all these people here were involved in Jesus' ministry or watching what he was doing. And what happens when Jesus and the disciples get on the boat to go take a break? All these people are watching them get on the boat. And they watch them get on the boat and sail away. And they're watching in what direct they're saying to themselves, what direction? I don't know why Jesus left, Bill. I don't, they looked exhausted, and I don't think he ate. And I don't know if they were saying these things, but anyways, they're wondering why Jesus left. And Jesus would do this sometimes. And they're, they're like, okay, so let's try to guesstimate where he's going to go. Maybe we can connect with him a little later. So they literally watched the boat as it's going away. Right? How many of you have ever been sitting on a beach and you see a boat way out in the distance and you kind of try to follow that boat as it's going and then it disappears into the sunset or whatever? Usually it's a big ocean liner. They're watching the boat go away and they're trying to figure out what... Okay, wait a minute. He's taking the northern route, which means he's staying near the coastline. They watched it go. They kept watching it to figure out where he's going to go. When they saw that he was staying near the coastline, taking that shorter route and the safer route because it's not out on the open water, they take off on the beach and try to follow along. So they're running along the beach, and this is a crowd. There's a lot of people. They're going along the beach trying to follow the boat as it's going like this. They're trying to keep up with it. This is insane. You just sometimes can't get away from people. You ever had that? You know, you're just trying to escape somebody. Jesus is like, man, there's just not enough wind. I don't know if Jesus was even watching them. I don't know if he was paying attention to them or if the disciples were trying to outrun them. I don't know. We're not going to get a break if you don't speed it up, Peter. Do something. Peter's out in the back trying to paddle, you know. They were going and the people were watching. And I think the disciples and Jesus were just headed in that direction. They weren't mindful of what's going on. But these people were watching that boat and they're running all... This is amazing. And they did this for four miles. 
Okay, I just got my Fitbit replaced. I'm not up to four miles yet. These people were fit. I don't know how they did it. They're running along the beach and through the villages and all that while somebody's keeping an eye on the boat. Four miles. Four miles they do this. It's incredible. Along the way, though, the crowd encountered and recruited additional villagers. And... The reason why the Passover is mentioned there, that means there were Passover pilgrims in the area. And you need to remember that maybe about a million people descended upon Jerusalem at this time. Maybe not quite that much, maybe that much, maybe more. So you've got all these pilgrims that are coming in to worship the Lord during Passover. And I think maybe the Passover might have just ended and they were leaving, I don't know. But there were people everywhere in the area. And as this crowd is running, it's gathering and adding to its numbers. And it's growing and it's growing while they have somebody out in the front spotting the boat, giving instruction. We need to go this way. We need to go that way. But the the crowd is just increasing. I don't know if the people in the original crowd were running around saying, you got to come with us, man. You know, we're going to go see Jesus. He performs signs and wonders. He heals people. I don't know what they were saying, but they were adding to their numbers as they were going. There was a lot of people. The original crowd grew. It became a a mass, a mega mass of humanity with spotters out front, you know, keeping an eye on Jesus' boat so they could lead the rest of the group in the right direction. And then Jesus, isn't it amazing? This is is what John tells us. Jesus and the disciples arrive at the destination first. They get to the beach. You know, they exit the boat. They walk across the beach. They, They enter the trailhead or whatever was there that led up to their destination and it says they went up the mountain. And why does it, what did they do? They climbed in a mountain right then? What, the Matterhorn was there? What does this mean? Well, you need to understand, for those of you, I know for those of you who have been to Israel, you would probably testify to this, but much of the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by hills and mountains. And, and so, you know, there's not a lot of flat spots going into the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's mountainous. And we're not talking about Mount Everest mountains. We're talking about low-range high-altitude foothills and stuff like that. But there's a lot of mountainous area and foothills and large hills around Galilee. And so when they get out and go across the beach up the trailhead, they have to go up to where the standard elevation is. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Sea of Galilee is like the second lowest point on earth, 700 feet below sea level. The number one is the Dead Sea, which is just about 100 miles south. It's like 1,200 or 1,600 feet below. Very low point on earth, which is incredible. So you can imagine the Sea of Galilee is almost like a crater lake in a way down below, and it's got kind of mountains and stuff like that around it. Now, there's some cities and stuff that back up to it. It's not all mountains, but there's a lot of foothills and stuff. And so they get out, and they've got to go up a pretty big hill just to get up to the right regular standard issue elevation. So they get out, and they go up the hill. And once they get up to the top where the plains are and where the flat part is, they sit down to rest. So that's the masses and that's the journey, that's the trip. Now let's look at the second M. This is the mercy, verses 5 through 9. Lifting up his eyes, this is, John is referring to Jesus. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this, it says this, he said this to test him, for he knew uh, himself what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So from this vantage point, you could clearly see the lake and the beach down below. You could probably see all the way to the other side of the lake. I mean, this was a a high point. You could see all around, left, right, behind you, everywhere. Very, very good perch to be able to see what's going on down below. And when Jesus lifts his eyes, right, they're sitting down, they take a break, and he lifts up his eyes, what does he see? He sees a large crowd headed in his direction. And I don't think he said it, because I know I would have. I would have looked over to Peter or somebody and said, the break is over. <laughs> that was the shortest break ever, right? Jesus didn't say anything like that, but I would have been like, you've got to be kidding me. 
Grab a tumbleweed, put it in front of us. I got to just get 10 minutes to myself, right? And I'm pretty selfish, so. So he sees this huge crowd coming toward him. And I don't know if they were coming up the trailhead or in from some other direction, but he sees this massive, massive crowd coming toward him. And, and, and John doesn't really capture it here. John just kind of shifts to the next thing that took place. But if you look at Mark 6.34, it tells us that when Jesus saw all these people coming toward him, he did the opposite of what Pastor Phil would do. He had compassion on them. I'm just being transparent. It's not that I don't love you or people. I do. But you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you've got to get a break. You're like done. And Jesus looks up and he doesn't say, this, we need to go, we, hide, guys, hide, you know, hide. He, he has compassion on them. And, 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 and sadly, when I evaluate my life, Jesus tends to do the opposite of what I do pretty regularly. Uh, that's not good for me. And Jesus, it, it says in the, in the same text, it says that Jesus, he kind of analyzes them and he looks out over them and he has this merciful kind of compassionate response to them. He sees all these people, and there's this wonderful detail in, in Mark 6. It says that he, he looked at them, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, and when sheep have no shepherd, and I'm talking about farming now, raising animals, when sheep have no shepherd, they have no guide. They have no protector. They have no medic. They have no nurse. No doctor. No one will take care of them when they get injured or sick. And, and they just sort of grope around and wander around, and, 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 and they get, sheep get themselves into some serious trouble. There's a few Old Testament uh, things that, that talk about sheep, one falling into a ditch. Well, how did he fall into the ditch? Because sheep really don't pay attention to what they're doing. They're, they're just kind of dumb animals, and you know, somebody tried to tell me they were really smart one day, and I'm like, I don't know if they are. I think honeybees are very smart. I don't think sheep are very intelligent. I don't think they're designed to be. And, and what does that say about us if we're the sheep? <laughs> if we don't have a guide, God, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Big, big messes. And we get attacked from various enemies and, and things like that. And, and so Jesus looks out and he does the opposite of what I would have been thinking. And he, and he has this heart of of love and compassion. And what he sees is a, a massive multitude of lost people who do not have a shepherd. And he is the, the good shepherd, right? Isn't that what the text says? Somewhere else. In fact, in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus actually referred to the Jewish people as the lost sheep of Israel. Desiring to show the masses mercy, Jesus moves to take care of their most immediate need, which at that point happened to be hunger. It was actually late in the day. It was probably near or even after supper time, Mark 6.35. So these people show up. They've hiked four miles. They're exhausted. Jesus and the disciples are exhausted, but Jesus has a heart of compassion he knows it's supper time. He knows these people are hungry, and he begins to move to meet the need. He wants to take care of these people. I love the fact that Jesus centered right at this moment on their immediate need. And, and sometimes, in order for us to have effective ministry with people, we have to have in mind the immediate need. We understand the big need, the fact that people need Jesus. But sometimes, before you can get to Jesus, they need a sandwich. They need a prayer. They need an encouragement, right? And so Jesus moves to meet the immediate need. And he does this firstly by asking Philip, one of his disciples, who bears my name, unfortunately for him. Uh, his name is Philip, just like my name is Philip. And Philip in the Navajo means lover of horses. I had no idea because I don't really like horses. Uh, but he looks over to Philip and he says... We got to do something about this, Philip. Where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? I doubt that Philip was even thinking at that moment that these people might be hungry and have a need. I think Philip was thinking what this Philip would be thinking. I need a break, Jesus. Can't we just slip away for a few minutes? And now you need to keep in mind in the context here, this is what again? A desolate place, right? So there's no markets. There's no bakery. You know, there's no golden fresh. 
there's, there's, there's no, you know, super euros. There's none of that around. There's nothing like that anywhere in the area. Nothing. It was a desolate place. And some of the other disciples overheard Jesus, right? So he's talking to Philip, but some of the other guys are there, and they're like me too in that they're nosy. They listen to him, and they begin to suggest that Jesus send the people away. Jesus, you need to get up on a rock and tell everyone to take a hike and come back after they've gotten some food. Tell them to go into the surrounding villages or something like that and get something to eat. Because there were some villages that weren't too far away. I don't know if you could see them, but if you went down the trail... So they, they overhear, and they're like, uh, just tell them to go somewhere else to get some food, then we'll deal with them later. And Jesus looks to whoever it was that said this and says, no, you give them something to eat. And, and well, I got a little something with me, but it's not going to, you know. It's fantastic how Jesus flips that on them, Mark 6, 36 through 37. When Jesus asked Philip the question, he was actually testing him to see how he would reply. Would Philip have a heart of compassion? Would Philip immediately become a bean counter and try to figure out how to fix the problem and then realize we can't fix it? Would Philip ultimately, in the ultimate sense, would Philip rely on himself to take care of this immediate need of all these people or would he rely on the one that was asking him the question? That's why he was testing him. Would Philip rely on himself to try to figure out how to make it happen? Or would he rely on the master who's talking to him who could easily produce enough food for the masses? Who would Philip rely on? And if you read the text, instead of relying on Jesus and asking if he would be willing to use his divine power to overcome the obstacle, to meet the need, Jesus, or not Jesus, Philip, he reaches into his pocket and he takes out his abacus. You know what an abacus is? It's an ancient calculator. It was basically a little thing that had a bunch of rods on it and a bunch of little ball things that you moved up and down. I don't think you can get higher than 10 on one of those things. I don't know. I don't think he really actually pulled one of those out. I'm, I'm, I'm adding color to the story. But what he did do was he tried to figure out what it would take to feed everyone, whether he had an abacus or not. And he runs the numbers. Well, let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 9,652, 9,006, 15,400. I don't know what he's doing, but he's looking out and he's trying to guesstimate what it would actually take to get all of these people fed. And he responds, he analyzes the crowd. He's like a bean counter. He's like an accountant. You accountant types are always trying to figure things out, right? I like it when you do my taxes. And he figures out that 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to get everyone just a little something, something out there. What is a denarii? A denarii is one day's wage for a common laborer. That's your entire day's pay is a denarii. And he says 200 denarii would not be enough to give everyone just a little bit out here. That's eight months' worth of wages. That's a lot of money. Now, you've got to keep in mind, Jesus and the disciples had a treasurer, Judas Iscariot, the worst guy in history to be your treasurer. But that was all divinely appointed and figured out. But that guy's the treasurer, and he was the one that kept the money. And people did, get, you know, they did collect money and things here and there. They had a treasury. They had money to fund the ministry and things when they were out. They didn't have a whole lot. I can guarantee you they didn't have 200 denarii in their money bag. And if they had, they would have had 75 because Judas would have taken 125 because he was stealing. He was robbing from the offering all the time. 200 denarii would not be enough. This was big money, and they did not have it. But ultimately, Philip, the guy who bears my name, failed the test because he turned to himself to try to figure out how to fix the problem. He turned to himself. He tried to rely on himself. And this is incredible. It's just remarkable because Jesus had already performed in seemingly innumerable miracles in front of Philip and the other disciples by this time. Right? How does that happen? How are you asked a question by one who performs miracles in a way that you've never even heard of 
and who has all this power and can do all these things. And I just described some of the things that Jesus did with these guys for the whole year, the gap that John doesn't include. I, you know, he's turned water into wine. He's done all these things. They've seen it all. And yet somehow we need to come up with 200 denarii. He doesn't realize who's asking the question and who he could rely on. He relies on himself. After all these miracles, after all these things are done, it's not that Philip didn't know what Jesus could do. You can't say that about Philip. Philip, Philip he wasn't you know, aloof and inept and dumb. It's the circumstances and the difficulty of the task that drowned out his ability to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus could do. I hope you heard me. Did you hear what I just said? It was because of the circumstances. It was because of the situation, the, the, the uh, perceived impossibility of the moment that blinded Philip from remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus could do. Let that sink in for a moment. How many times have we done that? How many times have we been in a situation that was difficult, harsh, seemingly impossible, desperate, even borderline despairing? I mean, it just brings you to a point of just hopelessness. And, and the circumstances and the situation and the dynamics of it cause us to absolutely forget about our God and what He can do. And to forget about what He's done throughout our whole life, the whole time of His faithfulness and always providing and always coming through. We do that, don't we? These berries are attacking me. We do that. I do that. And that's exactly what Philip does. We, we need to not allow the circumstances the difficulty of whatever the task is, whatever the situation is, drowned out our ability to remember who Jesus is and what He can do. This is just so important that we remember this. And Jesus, it says in the text, He knew what He was going to do. The whole time. The whole time. Jesus already had a plan. It was all laid out. He's the only one that knows about it at this point because He's asking people questions. And they're like, duh, we need money. They don't know. He had planned to show mercy. He had planned to use His divine power to meet the need. But the circumstances, you know, just blinded people from realizing that. Now, Philip might have failed to recognize what Jesus can do and what he'd done in the past and all that, and his, to rely on Him. He might have failed in that capacity, but I think that Peter's brother Andrew really did the right thing. He... he, he, he he didn't really like fully pass the test, but he passed it better than Philip did. And Andrew finds a, a little boy standing not too far away. And that little boy standing over there, and he's got himself a little, little bag lunch with his little Scooby-Doo, little metal, remember those little Star Wars, little lunch pail? He's sitting over there, there's a little bag lunch. He's got some, you know, some barley loaves in there. He's got his little couple of little fish with him. Barley loaves, what's a barley loaf? That's, that's just about the cheapest thing you could eat back in that day. That, that was the cheapest kind of bread there was. It, it, barley loaves were considered the bread of poor people. In fact, animals were fed barley. So that'll give you an idea. What about the fish? What did he have, a couple of marlins strapped to his back? No. No, these were sardines. They were the type of sardine. The Sea of Galilee is chock full of small fish, sardine-like fish. And fishermen would cast their nets out in the open waters, and they would gather hundreds of these little sardines. They would take them and gut them, and then they would pickle them, and then they would sell them at the street markets. Fresh fish were very, very hard to come by back in those days because you didn't have refrigeration. And you know how long fish lasts once it's out of water. In this hot desert region, five, ten minutes. That's it. As soon as it, gets to, as soon as it gets above 40 degrees, you're getting poisoned. The trout you just enjoyed is going to cause you to be very miserable for two days. So it was very unheard of for people to have fresh fish back in the day. Wealthy people had it. I don't know how they got it to them. I don't know. If you don't have refrigeration, how do you have ice? I, maybe they packed them with salt. I don't know. But it was very, very rare 
to get fresh fish, which means almost all fish were pickled because pickling will preserve. These little fish that this kid had were little pickled sardines, very common in that day, and it was the cheapest kind of bread, the barley loaves. Andrew takes notice of this little guy and his little sack lunch, grabs him, swoops him up, says, come here, kid, takes him over to Jesus. Andrew may have thought maybe Jesus could do something with the loaves and the fish. Maybe, I understand, I'm not missing the moment here, I understand Jesus' capability, maybe He could do something with this little bit of resource here. That's what's twirling around in his mind, although he does say, but how could it really make a dent in the situation here? So I think he's kind of curious about what Jesus might be able to do with this stuff. But he didn't just say, we need 200 denarii and then everyone can get a, a grain of sand morsel, like the guy that bears my name. Now well, he does something about it. I love what William Barclay wrote about this scene. This is just so good. He's an old Scottish theologian. Some of his stuff is phenomenal. Some of it's goofy. This part was not goofy. He said, it was Andrew who brought that young boy to Jesus and by bringing him made the miracle possible. Now, that's, he's not implying that, you know, Jesus can't do anything unless we take a step. He's just saying he went over and got the guy and brought him over and that kid had those resources and, and that's what Jesus used to perform the miracle. And he says this, no one ever knows what will come out of it when we bring someone to Jesus. Isn't that good? If parents train up their children in the love and fear of God, no one can say what mighty things those children may someday do for God or for others. If a Sunday school teacher brings a child to Christ, no one knows what that child may someday do for Christ and His church. And he says this, there is a tale of an old German schoolmaster who, when he entered his class of boys in the morning, used to remove his cap and bow ceremoniously to them. One asked him why he did this. Why do you do that, sir? His answer was, you never know what one of these boys may someday become. He was right. One of them was the founder of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Wow. And he continues, he says, Andrew may not have known what he was doing when he brought that boy to Jesus that day, but he was providing material for a miracle in a sense. We never know what possibilities we are releasing when we bring someone to Jesus. Isn't that good? It's amazing to me. Now, if you serve in the nursery or in kids' camp, make sure you bring our children to Jesus. That's, if, if you would like for me to make clear to you as one who serves in our kids' ministry, if you would like for me to make clear to you what you're to teach in youth ministry, Cameron, or anywhere on this campus, let me just tell you whether it's little tiny little munchkins that are in there that barely can even open their eyes, it's over here with other munchkins that open their eyes and you wish they'd close them and go to sleep, or if it's high school or junior high, let me just, I'm just going to, this is an edict from the senior pastor of the church here, bring them to Jesus. Preach the gospel, nothing more, nothing less. And do not, do not underestimate the potential that each one possesses because in Christ they possess so much. Okay? Keep that in mind. You never know. One of these little rugrats could be the next Martin Luther. And, you know, typically we think of youth ministry and kids ministry and all that, we think of it as babysitting. That's what we reduce it down to. Shame on us if that's the, our, our attitude. What an opportunity God has graciously given us to make disciples, even at the youngest ages. You, you don't know. God gets a hold of some of these kids, what He's going to do with them. And, and what joy you'll have when you get to look back and say, you know, God used me in that kid's life. Don't underestimate the potential that each child has and stick to bringing them to Jesus, okay? And, and, and you know what? Andrew sets an example for us here, doesn't he? Because that's exactly what he did. 
He took this little boy to Jesus. And you know what? There was a point during the ministry where Andrew and others were trying to keep children from coming to Jesus. I don't understand that. You remember the story? Don't prohibit the little children from coming to me. Might even be paralleled with or tied to where Jesus says, any one of you that causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a huge millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the Sea of Tiberias. It's pretty, Jesus is pretty serious about kids. We should be serious about kids. And I think we are. And I think you guys do a great job. But keep it about Jesus and don't underestimate, no matter how difficult that child might be, their great potential in the Lord. Because guess what? Anyone who's in Jesus has great potential for Him. Amen? All right. One of them could be the next Martin Luther or even higher position than that, pastor of this church. <laughs> pastor has no, no humility. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you never know. It could be one of these kids in here preaching one of these days. How cool would that be? I don't know. Maybe it'd be cool. I need to die first. Let's look at the third M. And I just want to commend Dan Parker and Frida and, and all you guys that serve in kids. You take that ministry very seriously. You're trying to raise up disciples of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who do that. Let's look at three, the miracle. Here's where it hits. 10 through 13, Jesus said, he gives instruction. These guys kind of drop the ball. Andrew has a better idea, right? And he says this, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. That'd be nice to sit on. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Huh? How? how? Yeah, right, miracle. And when they had eaten their fill, what? He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus instructs the disciples to to have everyone take a seat. And, And notice the details. John records the presence of grass. John wants us to know what this location was like, and where it was on the map. This is an, where this grass is on this plain is an actual geographic location near Bethsaida, Julius, almost on the lakeside, just at the top of the hill. There was a little plain there where grass always grew. John tells us they're right there on that grassy patch. And it says about 5,000 men took a seat. Why did John only mention the men? Were there not women and children present? Of course there were. We just read about a little boy with a sack lunch. Well, why does he only emphasize the men? Well, typically because men were the head of the household in those days. If a house or family needed to be addressed, you'd go to the man of the house. You'd Talk to the man, you deal with the man, you deal with the husband, you deal with the father. So probably what's playing out here is the 5,000 men may represent 5,000 households or roughly that much, meaning there's 15 to 20,000 people here. It's a lot of people. You've got women and children and you've got the husbands and men there. So probably the reference to 5,000 men is these are the guys that lead homes. That's the only thing that I can figure out. And once they were all seated, Jesus took the five barley loaves and the two fish, and he, he gave thanks to the Father for the provision. This is precisely why we pray before meals, because of this text, right? And we should, as Christians, have a heart of gratitude. This is why we say grace. This is why we give thanks for the food we are about to eat, receive. Uh, you do not have to, and I'm trying to train myself not to do this, you don't have to pray that God would bless the food in Jewish context, the food is the blessing of God, the fact that you have it. So you just give thanks for what you have. You just give thanks for what you have. And I think sometimes because we have a big double cheeseburger in front of us, we ask God to bless it because we know it's not good for us. Could you make something come out of this except for a stomachache? No. Look at what you're about to eat, you know. But we just give thanks before we eat. We're thankful to God. We're supposed to live in thanksgiving, an attitude and spirit of thanksgiving. So we give thanks. And Jesus lifts this stuff up and He prays to the Father and He gives thanks. And when He was finished praying, He began to distribute the bread and fish to those who were seated. And the bread and fish were multiplied over and over and over. 
In other words, the serving baskets would not empty no matter how much you removed from them. That must have been really interesting, right? You pull out three fish and then three more appear. Pull out a couple of loaves. It's like, what is going on here? I would be like... And it would be like every time I pull one out. and No, can't keep up with it. I don't know what it looked like. But there was a never, it was like there was a never-ending supply. Every time you took some out, there was more. And they just kept handing it out. It just kept coming and it just kept coming and coming. That's incredible to me. You just you couldn't out, you couldn't empty the baskets, the serving trays, whatever they were served on. There was such an abundant supply of bread and fish, everyone there was able to eat until they were full. Okay, you wanted to take 200 denarii and give everyone a little communion wafer-sized meal, and Jesus doesn't need the denarii, and he provides an absolute feast where everyone is eating until they are absolutely full. After the meal, Jesus instructs the disciples to gather up the leftover fragments. Why? Why did he tell them to do this? Well, it was customary. At Jewish feasts, the regular practice was to leave something for the servants, those who served the meal and took care of everyone. The leftover part of the meal for the servants was called the peah. When Jews traveled, they carried small bottle-shaped baskets uh, with them, which they used to carry food and other small supplies. The disciples had these baskets with them, and when they went around and collected the fragments, they took the fragments of the bread and they put them into these little bottle-shaped baskets, into their baskets. Why? Why did they collect all this stuff and put it in their little personal baskets? Because they're the ones that took care of everyone. They're the ones that turned into the, you know, the, the waiter situation here and waited on everyone and made sure everyone got fed. They were the ones that served everyone there. So there were 12 Disciples at this point, and therefore 12 baskets of fragments. So each guy had his own little personal supply when it was all said and done. That's the miracle, okay? Now let's look at the fourth M, the misunderstanding. This is where it gets sketchy. 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, speaking of Jesus, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Notice the exclamation point in verse 14. This is him. He's here. Perceiving, it says in 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, speaking of Jesus, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When the people saw what Jesus did, how he supernaturally multiplied the bread and fish, they thought of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. And I think I've read this to you before, but it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So way back in the day, Moses prophesied about a, a, a prophet who would come, who is the Messiah, and he would be like Moses in a number of ways. He would wield supernatural power, and Moses absolutely did. God worked miracles through Moses. Uh, Moses performed signs and wonders. Well, this prophet to come, the Messiah, would perform signs and wonders. He just did right here with the bread. And, and also, Moses delivered God's people out of uh, Egypt, right? God used him to bring the people out of Egypt. And this prophet to come that is like Moses would be a deliverer. So the crowd is totally making connections here with what Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18.15. They quickly connected Jesus' miracle in this desolate place to the events of Exodus 16, which involved wilderness, hunger, Moses, and a miraculous supply of manna, which is also called bread from heaven. Right? So the people are looking at what Jesus just did, and they're thinking way back to their ancestors who were moping around in the wilderness for 40 years, and God supernaturally fed them the bread of heaven, and they're paralleling, and they, they know Moses was involved in that, and they're paralleling what Jesus ju- just did with that situation back then. They're making the connection. And they were absolutely right in their assessment. Jesus is the prophet whom Moses spoke about, no doubt. 
They're right about that part. This is indeed the prophet, exclamation point. Yes, you got it. Nailed it. Bing, bing, bing. Tell them what they won, Johnny. They got that right, but they were incorrect in their theology. They wanted an earthly, political Messiah who would meet all their physical needs and deliver them from Roman oppression. They were not interested in a Messiah who could deliver them spiritually, one who could cleanse them of their sin and unrighteousness. Religious pride kept them from seeing their true need, forgiveness, repentance, faith. Despite Jesus' many, many gospel presentations, His calls to repentance, the signs and wonders that He performed in front of these people, in front of multitudes, the people misunderstood who He is and why He came. Their desire for an earthly deliverer culminated after this meal. They began to scheme. Wow, this has got to be the prophet that Moses talked about. He's the one that's going to destroy the Romans for us. He's the one that's going to do all these fantastic... He's the one that's going to be the magic genie. Every time we rub the lamp, he's going to come out and do what we want. This was literally their theology. Their Messiah in the Jewish mind is a servant to them entirely, and he's just going to do everything they want, which is really unfortunate. And, and they, they see Jesus do this miracle, and they eat the food that He provided, and they parallel it to Moses and Moses' words, and they're thinking, wow, maybe, maybe this dude's like the Moses guy that Moses talked about, and, and wow, and then they start scheming. They start scheming. They start talking with each other. Maybe we should seize Jesus. Maybe we should grab Him. Maybe we should take Him back to Jerusalem and, and force Him to be our king. And you know what it means... When it says, force him to be our king, it means we're going we're gonna to take you, Jesus, against your own will, because Jesus had denounced anything like this. We're going to take you against your own will. We're going to take you to Jerusalem. We're going to put you on a throne. We're going to build a military and give you a military. We're going to give you all the supply you need, and then we want you to go kick Rome's butt. That's the thinking. You're going to go, and you're going to deal with our adversary once and for all, and in, in some ways, you really can't blame the Jewish people in the sense that they were completely oppressed and abused by the Romans. The Romans treated them horrifically. And why is that? Because of their disobedience to God. You have to understand that all of the oppression and every, anything and everything negative and terrible that the Jews have experienced is at the hand of a loving God who is disciplining His people. They were not at a point here where they needed to be delivered because they were still being disciplined, just as they are today. Why do they have Hamas and all these enemies? Because they are under the disciplinary action of God. They were asking to be delivered from something that they needed to suffer so that they would come to their senses, but they never did during that time. And they, they want to take Jesus and look, this guy can do this, he can turn bread. They're thinking, well, back in the wilderness... Moses distributed bread to the entire nation of 2 million people. We can bring Jesus back to Jerusalem. He fed 20,000 and he can feed our whole community. And he can get rid of the Romans for us and do all these things for us. Like I said, it's the magic genie mentality. He can serve us and do all these great things for us. And, and this, is, this is what they're entertaining here. Instead of being humbled by yet another display of Jesus' power, and connecting that display of His power with His preaching, the gospel, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what He preached. They didn't make that parallel because of all that pride. Now they just conspire. And, and Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He omnisciently perceives what they are about to do. And He actually begins to dismiss the crowd. You don't get that idea from John. It's not here. But it's in Mark 6.45. These people are about to seize him, and he begins to tell them to hit the road. And at the same time, he instructs his disciples to get in the boat and to sail toward the other Bethsaida. Get back in the boat and go to the other side where you came from and go to Bethsaida. Mark 6.45. After this, after Jesus begins to dismiss the crowd and get people away from him because they're coming over to him, trying to, trying to hoist him up, trying to take him by force, he tells him, no, no, and he sends him away, away, away. And then he takes his disciples aside and he says, get in the boat and get out of here. And then when they leave, 
he slips away into the mountainside. He just slips away, slips right out of their grasp into the mountainside. Why? He had gone to spend time with his father in prayer. Mark 6, 46. I'll close with a couple of thoughts here. First, the feeding of the 5,000, and really it was like 20,000, clearly testifies to Jesus' Messiahship and divinity. Just, just the miracle itself, the ability to, to, to take minimal resource and ex- supernaturally expand it to the point where all these people eat to their fill, a miracle of that level, really any miracle, but I say this sober-mindedly because the magicians and all that that served the Pharaoh performed a whole lot of stuff too back when you look before the Exodus. So demonic forces can give demonic people the ability to perform miracles. But I would say a miracle of this caliber and at this level, no doubt, no doubt testifies to the Messiahship and divinity of Jesus. This is why John includes it here. Only God could perform a miracle like this. And since Jesus performed it, the inference we're supposed to draw is that He is indeed God, right? This is what... John has been building on the whole time. Every miracle says Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is God. So that's a primary point in this text, no doubt. And yet, some would argue that Jesus performed only two feeding miracles according to Scripture. The feeding of the 5,000 at Bethsaida, Julius, what we just read. And guess what? A little later, there's the feeding of 4,000 at Decapolis. Matthew 15, Mark 8. So there was 5,000 fed during one time and 4,000 fed in another. And the 5,000 that were fed were Jewish. The 4,000 were Gentile. Some would say those are the only two uh, situations in Scripture where Jesus feeds multitudes of people. I would argue differently. Since Jesus is God and since He is the agent in creation, right? All things were made to Him, through Him, and for Him, and by Him. This means that he was present and actively involved in the feeding of the Israelites while they were in the wilderness during the Exodus, doesn't it? You think the Father fed all those Israelites, the over a million people in the wilderness during the Exodus, the thing that the people were tying to Moses and all that here, do you think that he did that apart from Jesus and that Jesus was somehow not present when that took place? No, see, you, you have to think in terms of logic. And in terms of Scripture, if all things have been made by Jesus and through Jesus, right? You can read about that yourself in Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Then he must be the divine baker who created and delivered the manna, the bread of heaven, to the Israelites at that time. Right? You see, I believe the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000 and the 4,000 point to or point to how the pre-existent Son of God, Jesus Christ supernaturally fed the Jews long before His incarnation and birth, thus proving that He is divine. In other words, Jesus fed multitudes of people, performed feeding miracles more than two times. He also did it at the Exodus. Right? More than two times. I think this text is meant to remind us of what Jesus was doing before He was ever born and how He was feeding and caring for His people. Second, if we were to categorize Jesus' miracles, we could put them into three categories, probably more, but I say three. There are the restorative miracles where Jesus healed people and raised the dead. These are big. I mean, all of them were big. I don't want to screw this word up, but there, there are the exorcistical miracles. It's actually a word. Exorcistical miracles where Jesus exorcised demons and cast out evil spirits, right? So you've got, you've got miracles where He restored people back to life or to health. You've got miracles where He exorcised, He cast out demons and evil spirits and things. And then you have the creative miracles where Jesus created sustenance and maybe where He temporarily uh, suspended the laws of physics or nature, i.e. gravity. How else do you think he walked on water? He suspended gravity. 
Or another example of a creative miracle would be where he calmed a violent storm with a verbal command. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 is a creative miracle. In fact, it is the second creative miracle in the Gospel of John. Can you guess the first one? The turning of water into wine. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want you right now to think about the two substances Jesus created through those miracles, wine and bread. What did wine and bread come to represent? The body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Communion, that's what we call it. Now, if you scroll down a little in John 6, you will see Jesus' synagogue discourse where he presents his own body and blood as true food because he alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger and thirst. In many ways, the discourse down below looks like the conversation with the Samaritan woman when she comes for physical water and he says, you need living water because only the living water will satisfy you spiritually. He does the same thing down below here in 6 with bread. Because you know what happens after this? After the next section where he walks on water, the people track him down again. And they simply want to be fed by him. And he says, I can easily produce more physical bread for you, but it's not going to take care of your need. And then he goes into his entire discourse on how he is the living bread or the bread of life the bread of God, the bread of heaven. Jesus is the true manna. That's the rest of six. It's amazing. 